Welcome to Getting Real About Baxter, the podcast where I talk to several experts about the various lakes, streams, and ponds in Baxter State Park and the fish that live in them. I'm your host, Sylvia Hart, with Friends of Baxter State Park, and in today's episode, I discuss what it was like working in the park for 45 years, 24 of which was spent as park director with Buzz Caverly. He tells me all about what led up to his working in Baxter, and off recording shows me his retirement project, a campground. Who are you? My name is Irvin Christopher Cavalli III, um, and I'm from Skowigan, Maine, originally. Mm-hmm. Um, what drew you to working for Baxter State Park? A little longer story than you want to hear, but I was convinced early in high school that I wanted to join the Maine State Police when I was old enough to the point I became paranoid and started applying when I was a junior in high school, only to get a letter back from Colonel Robert Marks that uh, thanked me for the application, my interest in the Maine State Police. However, they noted from my application, I was only 17 years old or 16, whatever it was, and uh, I would not qualify. So I tried again when I uh, was a senior, got the same letter back, I was still too young, and then, it was in the process there that my dad, who worked for the Maine Forest Service as a district forest ranger, came to me and he said, you know, we brought you up the best we can. We want you to, we've done what we can for you. I'd like to ask a favor of you. And I said, what's that? He said, I don't really want you to join the state police. I can't envision you going on to an automobile accident with a bunch of kids that got killed or whatever. And he said, I just don't think you'd be as happy there as I am with the Maine Forest Service. And last week I was in Augusta to an annual meeting and the supervisor of Baxter Park, Elon Taylor, was there. And we were talking and he indicated that he had three vacant ranger positions coming up. This was in 1959, effective for the 60 season. And he said, uh, I talked to him about you a little bit. He seemed interested and I said, he said, I'd like to have you uh, apply for the job. Try it for one season. If you like it, wonderful. If you don't, I'll never interfere again with whatever you want to do. So that's how it all come about. I, uh, I did apply. A uh, short time later, I got a call from Helen Taylor, which is at his winter home in Guilford. And my father drove me over and uh, he interviewed me. And ironically, the two questions that hang in my uh, mind, the first questions he asked was, do you smoke or do you drink? And I said, I don't do either and never have. And then the next question is, tell me your experience in the woods. Do you know how to use an axe? And my thought was to tell him that I'd had an, I was born with an axe in my hand, but I didn't go that far thinking it probably would be a smart aleck answer. <laughs> and uh, answered his questions. And he said, uh, at the end of the interview, there was many, many more questions, and I don't obviously remember all of them now. But they were character questions, pretty much. Uh, and uh, when I got all done, um, he said, uh, uh, you will hear from me within a few weeks. I was working, I was at this point in time, obviously out of high school, and I was working a, a job in Skowigan. And I got a stand at my aunt's house, and I got a letter in the mail. And uh, dear Mr. Cavalier, thank you for your interest at Baxter Park. 
and I'm pleased to advise I'm inviting you to join the Baxter State Park family. Uh, at that time, there was seven rangers, one supervisor, wow. and a reservation clerk in Millinocket. That's it. That was the extent of the one. There was seven campgrounds. There was a ranger for every campground. Oh, yes, there was a maintenance ranger. They called him a roving ranger. He would go to wherever something needed to be built, an outhouse built or a camp repaired or whatever, garage built, whatever. He would go and he'd do that project with the help of the ranger that was assigned to that specific area. And um, they called him a roving ranger because he did the carpentry work primarily, but he also filled in if there was a if there was an emergency and one of the seven rangers had to have a day off or go somewhere, Owen would be the roving ranger would come in and, and do that job for that day. So that's a little longer than probably what you wanted for an answer. No, I. That's perfect. <laughs> okay. Um. So. When you were the head of the park, the okay. director, what did you look forward to every day on the job? Okay, let me, uh, let me just back up just a little bit to tell mm -hmm. you that the first 10 years I worked, I was uh, the first uh, three years, I was a backcountry ranger at Russell Pond Campground. Are you familiar with Russell? I am, yeah. I, uh, I was sent in there. Uh, I went to A-Ball first to fill in for one of the guys that had... Uh, gone and been drafted into service. So I filled that season out at A-Ball. And then in the fall, I was transferred to Russell because it came a permanent, permanent seasonal status. In other words, I had reemployment rights every year thereafter, mm -hmm. where that one summer, if I'd stayed at A-Ball and got done, I'd had to apply all over again. So I went to Russell, wonderful experience. Went in there in September, just before Labor Day, and stayed for the remainder of the season and then spent uh, two, three years after that and then I was transferred out to Katahdin Stream Campground, one of the busiest of the park in those days. And I spent um, uh, a couple of years there, oh, three, I guess. And then I was appointed to a new position of assistant supervisor in 1968. And then in 71, I was permanently appointed as supervisor of the park. And then in 1981, uh, the a new position that had been created years before of director, which was a position hired not only to manage the park and budget the park, but also to write, uh, maintain long-term, long-range plans. Mm -hmm. um, that position, uh, the director was hired for, it was a Penn State professor. He worked there seven years, and then he left because his policy in life was you work no more than seven years at one job if you want lots of experiences. So when he announced that he was getting done, I asked him, I said, would you, we've had a good working relationship and you've given me pretty good evaluations. Would you recommend it? If I were to apply for the director's job, would you recommend me? Mm -hmm. And he said, no, I won't. And I said, well, can you tell me why? And he said, yes, I can. Uh, I said, well, you tell me why. I've got 27 years of experience. And he said, no, you don't. He says, You've had one experience for 27 years, and to have experiences, you have to have a variety of jobs. Mm -hmm. And he says, my policy in my life, and he lived by it, was I work, I work no longer than seven years in any one position, and then I move on to a, a new experience. Well, I disagreed with him on that. Of course I would disagree with him, and I applied. And this is a little lengthy, and shut me off if you need to, whenever. But I applied with the Maine State uh, Personnel Department, 
I got a lot of back and said that because I did not have a college education, mm -hmm. I was not uh, I was not qualified for the job. Uh, I didn't like that. I made a trip to Augusta and argued my case. That didn't work. They sent me home. And after a lot that happened in between, I was still determined that I would I was qualified to do that job. <laughs> Uh, based on my 27 years experience in various locations and yeah. work and as assistant supervisor and supervisor during those times on acting capacities and so forth. So I was watching TV one night and Walter Cronkite, I don't know whether you remember him or not, he was maybe a little young for that, yeah. but he was like a Dan Rather that took his place, mm -hmm. national correspondent. And on the news he announced that the U.S. Supreme Court had just announced that day that an employer could not discriminate because of education. I was in my car at 5 o'clock the next morning. <laughs> I drove to Augusta. I walked in, and Ken Cunningham was sitting on the front desk, and he looked at me. He said, what are you doing here today? And I said, I've come down to put my application in. He said, Buzz, you've been here three times. We've told you every time. We're not going to accept it. I said, do you ever listen to the news? He said, what's that got to do with it? And I said, well, last night, Dan, uh, Walter Cronkite uh, announced that the U.S. Supreme Court had just ruled that you can't discriminate against. He said, I don't believe that. And I said, you ha everybody has a supervisor. I assume you have one. And he said, yes, I do. I want to speak to him. So he said, he hasn't got time. And I said, well, tell him this. Tell him I'm down here. This is my story. I've just told you. I'm going to sit in this chair if it takes till five o'clock tonight until he comes out and talks to me. And he says, are you serious? If I get to sit and look at you all day long, <laughs> I said, I'm afraid you have if I don't get to talk to the boss. <laughs> so he went in and sure enough, the guy come out and he says, okay, Cavalier, what's up? And I explained to him, same thing I had. And he said, uh, we have not received the word on that. And I says, then go request it because it's important to me that I, I'll, apply for this job and compete. So we went out back. He was gone quite a long time, and then he came back out. He didn't say a word to me. He just looked down at Ken Cunningham, the receptionist, and said, uh, sign in his application and process it. Nice. And he turned and walked away. And I went out with a big grin on my face. I come home. I applied for the job. It was accept uh, The application was accepted. But they put me through seven interviews because I didn't have a college education. Oh my God. <laughs> I had to interview with the three authority members individually. Yeah. I had to meet with them, interview with them as a total, the three, Attorney General, Fish and Game Commissioner, and uh, Forestry Director. They made me interview with the Audubon Society, the Natural Resource Council, the Appalachian Trail uh, Club, and there was one other one, Sierra Club. Mm -hmm. And uh, I interviewed with all of them. There were seven candidates that applied education to the limit mm. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm the dropout so to speak <laughs> never get in and never applied to go to college anyway uh, went through seven interviews and the final day we were convinced that I wasn't going to get it mm. just there was too much feelings from many organizations that were opposed to me because of education. Primarily, uh, as the Attorney General said to me at that time, um, uh, Jim Tierney was, uh, he said that, uh, Buzz, 
the people that know you in the Millinocket area and surrounding towns, he said, you, you got some high ratings. Mm -hmm. But he says, the rest of the state that don't know you, they're opposed to you, and that's where the major organizations are based out yeah. of Augusta. So, and he says, uh, however, we've completed this interview. We've talked to all of the candidates. And I'm pleased to announce that we have selected you as the director for Vesta Park. Oh, wow. Look, um, that gives me goose pimples today to think of it. But uh, I, uh, I was so appreciative. Uh, there was one member of the authority with the forestry director at that time, and I knew he was opposed to me. I didn't know what the other two's positions were. So I looked him dead in the eye when Tandy told, said that to me, and I said, Ken, uh, is this a unanimous decision? Because I didn't want to work for a broken authority. Mm. I want to be sure they were. And he very quickly looked at me, smiled, and said, yes, wow. I suppose this decision. So I got the job, and Tandy said to me just before I left, he called me in after the others had left. He was alone. He was chair of the authority. And he says, Buzz, he said, uh, as I've told you before, you're well known in the area, and you're highly recommended up there, but you've got to get out to the people of Maine in some way and communicate with them. I want you to stop downtown on your way home and buy a tape recorder. And when you're driving in your car and you have thoughts of issues that you think would be of interest to people, mm -hmm. you find a way to get to them. I did, I got the tape recorder and I'm riding mile high, if you will. I felt like I was on top of Katahdin at that point. Uh, and I'm coming up the interstate and I started thinking of all these things. And I started thinking, how do I communicate to the whole state of Maine and do it effectively? And God is good. He sent a thought into my head that I would never have come up with myself. And that thought was, you contact the Appalachian Mountain Club, the Sierra Club, the Appalachian Trail Conference, all of these organizations. You write to their, their department heads, so to speak, the head of the organization, and you tell them that you're going to be starting the process of a communication mm -hmm. meeting twice a year, spring and fall, where you will invite them in with an agenda as to what's happened the previous six months and what is projected to happen or proposed for the next six months. You do that twice a year with the understanding that they'll take that information and they will distribute it to their membership, mm -hmm. newsletter, however they want to do that. And you know, I implemented that. It was a huge success. Uh, every organization that, some I'm not even thinking of naming now, the ones I have named, plus many more, uh, came to those meetings. And we held them religiously, right on through the probationary period and for two years after that, uh, when at the last meeting we had with them, the representatives, the key people at that meeting at that time, the head of these agents, uh, these organizations, said to me, Buzz, you know, you've done a really good job in keeping us informed. We appreciate it. We trust you'll do that with your annual report. And consequently, uh, we're relieving you of the response, if you want. Mm -hmm. We'll come if you want us to. But if you don't, you know you can call us anytime you want to and communicate with us. And uh, they did. They, uh, they, uh, we, we ended it at that point. And... Uh, Anytime I did an annual report, I'll show you a sample of what I've done. Have you seen one of the annual reports um, from the park? 
Do you mean like where they, they have all their rules and, and well, things Where like I that report on, on all the activities. Um, the, the director reports all of the activities. I'll show you one before you go. Okay. In fact, I can give you one take with you if you want it. Uh, and we did that. And from that point on, when the controversial issues popped up, I had tremendous support from around the state. Uh, example, the Maine Snowmobile Association was promoting uh, allowing sleds back into the park because they hadn't been allowed, allowed up to that point. Mm -hmm. And it was very controversial. It was, a, it was a nasty subject in the sense we'd go to public hearings and um, people who were really strongly in support of sleds being in there were angry. Mm. And the ones that didn't want them in there, primarily the environmental groups, they were angry. Mm. And the chair of the authority at that time, which had been Glenn Manuel, uh, come up one day to visit where we took a ride through the park. And in the process of doing so, he says, Buzz, we're in a tough spot as the authority. He said, uh, we can't please anybody. No matter what we do, we're in trouble. If we say yes, we're in trouble. If we say no, we're in trouble. You as director, focus on that a little bit and see if you can help us out. So I did, thought about it for a week or two, maybe not that long, maybe longer. And then the thought occurred to me, God's good again. Uh, he occurred, uh, it occurred to me that if uh, the automobiles are using the roads in the summer, Roaring Brook Road, South Branch, Perimeter Road, in the summer, would it not be reasonable to use the perimeter road at least, so mm -hmm. people could travel from the south end of the park to the north end through the park. They wouldn't have to go to Runbrook, they wouldn't have to go in South Branch Pond, but just keep them on the perimeter road. And with the understanding that there would be no drag trails, because that would in, increase speed. Yeah. And what our goal was is not to have, I ride snowmobiles, I've ridden them fast, I've ridden them slow, and I've dumped them over. But the key was we got cross-country skiers and we got technical mountain climbers that are using those roads to get to their hiking and camping points and we wouldn't want a snowmobile flying up through there at 35 40 miles yeah. an hour with them around some of those corners you know the roads you're, you're from that area and uh, so I thought that all out and I went to the chair and I told him what I'd proposed and the proposal was that we open the park up to snowmobiles but they use the trails uh, uh, onto a certain standard, mm -hmm. and that standard would be they could travel from Toad Pond to Matagammon. Uh, the speed limit would be the same as it is for motor vehicles in the summer, 20 miles an hour, and uh, there would be no drag trails. And uh, I said, uh, Mr. Chair, I think this is a compromise that could be accepted by both sides. And geez, you want to give me a hug? None of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, I went to the next authority meeting, which was at Bolton Hill in Augusta, Maine Forest Service headquarters, and uh, he addressed the group, opened it up, and then said our director has a recommendation he'd like to give to us. So I stood up, I made my presentation. What I get done, uh, the Maine Snowmobile Association, uh, Myers, Bob Myers, I think was at that time, he stood up representing the organizations of the state of Maine, and he said, this isn't what we wanted, but it is what we can accept. And that was a big relief right there. Was a yeah. <sighs> I'm sure. Moment. <laughs> and then uh, the environmental group. Um, you know, I can't think of him. Anyway, he stood up 
And he said, this definitely is not what we wanted. But I agree, we can accept it. Mm. We put that policy in place. I think that was in um, around 82, if my memory is correct. Because I'd only been director for a short time. I was appointed director in 81. Um, and that's had been in place uh, all the years since. And wrapping it up here, I'd just say I had a, a wonderful moment here when Eben come on as the new director of the park after he'd replaced Jensen. He was on a radio talk show, the John, um, John Hale, Rick Tyler show. It's mm -hmm. on 103.9 every morning on the radio. He was interviewing on that as the new director of Baxter Park. And he got a call from a snowmobiler. And he said, now that you're in place, when are you going to drag the trails for us? And his answer was absolutely brilliant in the sense he was new on the scene and he could have been trapped in that question. His answer was, well, we're not going to open up that can of worms. And that was all he said, and the subject went away. Wow. <laughs> so it... Uh, the policy is still in place today, as far as I know. Yeah. You can verify with that with those who are working today, but I, I believe it's still as it has been. Yeah. Long story. Sorry it takes so long to do it, but it's important to hear the details on that, I think. Yeah. Um, would you would you say you were very proud of that, that you, you I was that? I was pleased in the sense that I could do for the authority what a responsible director should do. Mm -hmm. Get them out of a bind. Yeah. And... Uh, they they recognized it, and I'll tell you the relationship I had with that authority, Jim Jim Tierney, um, uh, Jim Tierney, uh, Glenn Manuel, and Ken Stratton mm -hmm. was outstanding. Yeah, that's that makes things much easier. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you feel with Caverly Pond being named after you? I was humbled, extremely humbled. My wife and I, my wife passed away uh, in 17, uh, 2017, and well, a year and a half or so later, I married her best friend who lived across the road, and she was taking care of a, her Down syndrome sister. And we, Jen, she and I had hiked a lot. And that's another story I'll get into if you want it, but you probably don't want to go that far. But uh, what was your question? <laughs> How do you feel with Caverly Pond being named okay. after you? Uh, when I when I went for the retirement party, and um, they had done it big time, they held it at the University of Maine. In fact, there's a tape here somewhere of it. It was really way above and beyond. I don't know how many people, over 100 people showed up. And, wow. Uh, there was Bill Green. You know Bill? Yep. Bill was the um, moderator for the, <laughs> for the event. And people spoke after spoke after spoke, and, and then Steve Rowe presented me with the um, the only one that's ever been given is a lifetime pass to Baxter State Park. You'll see it on my car when you go out; it's on the front bumper. And uh, there, there's never been one of those issued in the past, and I don't think there's been one issued since. Yeah, that was humbling. And then they announced that they were uh, naming uh, Round Pond after me and the lookout at Russell Pond. And and the lookout, specifically it was a case where when Jan and I were dating, 
she and her sister and brother-in-law and family came to Russell to spend some time with me. And while I were up there, I took Jan up to the lookout. It's a short hike from Russell Pond. You've been there, I'm sure, and you mm -hmm. climb up that big rock, and then you see the way out to Stacyville beyond. And on this one trip, she and I went up alone. And it was sitting on the rock there, and we was looking out of the and she was going over and over, how beautiful, how beautiful, how quiet, how nice, and all of that. And I turned to her, and I said, Jan, I've got a wonderful job here. I appreciate every minute. I love this work. But I need a partner. Would you marry me? Oh and my she God. said, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that's that is, where I proposed. That's very special. To my wife, Jan. And we were married for 53 years, which she passed away. But. So, interestingly enough, uh, eyes getting a little blurry. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. It's okay. Uh, interesting enough, I was living in the house over beside here. We'd built it. Jen and I had built that house during our days off, vacations, whatever. And uh, she was on on the other end of the board, everything I did, whether it was shingling up on top of the roof of the garage of the house or inside, whatever, she was on the other end of the board. So the house was so much her. And when she when she left, uh, I'm sitting in that and I'm hating myself. At one point, I remember thinking, if somebody would drive in the dooryard now and tell me they'd take this house, I'd give it to them. I just want out of here. The memories are too. Mm. It's too emotional. And so I wanted out of there. And I was starting to get into a real depression stage beyond above the shock of the funeral and all that, uh, the burial and all that. Uh, but I was starting to really, really think some pretty bad things about what I should or shouldn't do. And then one evening, I got this call from Louise. So I said, she spent 23 years taking care of her down system sister. Mm -hmm. She was single. She called me up. We'd hiked together, as I said, Jan and she and I. We've got pictures of she. There's one right there, right up there. Oh, that's, I see. Uh, yeah. If you'd like to take a look at it, that's Jan on the right, Louise on the left, and Louise's sister. Um, In the, the middle? The Down syndrome sister. And we were down to Acadia National Park, and I took that picture. Oh, wow. That's cool. But uh, she called, and she says, um, My other sister, Carol's going to come up and stay with Mildred for the day. I've got a day off. Would you like to go for a hike down to uh, Bubble Rock? Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't know anything about Bubble Rock. Never heard of it. I said, <laughs> but I wanted out of the house. And I said, yeah, I sure would. So we went down and we hiked up to Bubble Rock around the lake there and up over the cliff and had a great day, hiked back and dropped her off, come home. A week later, she calls up and she says, I've got another day off. Would you like to go to Bubble Rock? But this time we'll go the... Uh, the easy way. And I said, Louise Giles, did you take this old ranger the hard way the first time <laughs> and didn't take me the easy way? That's not ethically good. <laughs> but yes, I'd like to go. So we went back down that week and climbed. And 10 days or a week after that, I asked her if she would like to go to Baxter Park with me for a hike. And went to Baxter Park. That was in uh, early winter. Ashley volunteered to do some clipping on the Chimney Pond Trail for the, they hauling, they hauling propane those days up with snow sleds. Mm -hmm. So we, we were cutting the limbs to 
So yeah. they're getting slapped in the face, going up, trying to get momentum to go over those hills. So uh, we did that. And then on January of that year, I lost Jan in August 24th of uh, 2017. On New Year's Eve, 2018, I asked her if she'd take a snowmobile trip to it with me and a short snowshoe hike to Baxter Park. And she said yes. So, got all together and went up, took the snowmobile from Abel Bridge into Round Pond, a cavalry pond, left the snow sled, carried two lawn chairs and a snow shovel, and put on our snowshoes and walked the like from here to the house across the road, maybe you've been around pond, you probably know yeah. how it is. Uh, walked into the pond, I shoveled off the ice. She said to me while I was shoveling, she says, how deep's this pond? And I said, right where we're standing, standing, there's a sand beach and it's probably maybe four inches of ice. So she was relieved at that. And I shoveled that off. She sat down in the chair and she's digging out the lunch she had brought. And I dropped down onto my knees and I asked her if she'd marry me. And she said yes. And so my first wife, I uh, I asked and basically was ready to plead, <laughs> and the second wife as well. Uh, and we got married on June 3rd of the following year, which had been uh, June 3rd of 2018. And God has been so good to me, you know, for a 50, for a 80-year-old man, I'm 82 now, but for a 78-year-old man, bald-headed, pot-bellied, not very diplomatic, uh, for two women, two angels on the face of this earth came to me through his, his method, I'm sure. Mm. I'm convinced. And uh, I'm a happy camper. Uh, she's a wonderful lady. You're going to meet her before you go because I'm going to make it a point that you do. And uh, she is so good to me. Yeah. So good. She's precious. All of them, both of them, two angels. Um, what was your biggest challenge being park director? I think the controversial issues. Yeah. All the way from whether you put a forest fire out or you let it burn to way apart positions. Yeah. Uh, resource managers and people work in the woods and love the woods. They want a fire put out quick. Yeah. And there's another side that thought ecologically, what they're talking like, uh, they're talking about uh, today about, uh, well, the government is anyway, about climate change. Yeah. And that's what those issues were. Then the other issue was the motorcycles wanted to come in, and we had to say no to that. That got that organization upset. And then the snowmobile, we've been all over that. Uh, and... Uh, Management issues, they weren't, management issues were some, there were some tough decisions, but nevertheless, the, the, the 28 deeds that I studied and read it like a normal person with the Bible, I studied those deeds, 28 deeds over 32 years, this man put together so that his park would not only be preserved and protected, mm -hmm. but be managed in the manner in which he wanted it. Yeah. And those deeds are so impressive. I have a letter here I'll show you. I sent him a letter in 1968 after I'd become supervisor, a birthday greeting. And I sent him a picture of the ranges at that time. And he wrote back to me this letter. And he thanked me for the picture and thanked me for 
writing to him and so forth. And then he said, we shall stay in touch. I shall write you, and I want you to write me. We are partners in this project. Now, for a 24-year-old man, kid, <laughs> nowadays <laughs> when I look at it, 24 years old to get a letter like that from the most important governor the state of Maine ever had, in my view. Oh, yeah. I figured he'd probably, where else do you find a politician today that would go to the extent to work for uh, 32 years oh, yeah. to put 20, 28 deeds together to create and, and buy the highest mountain in the state of Maine? Mm. Uh, just to, uh, So I've got that letter. It's framed out in the garage. I'll show it to you. When Phyllis Austin, after I retired, a freelance writer, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but mm -hmm. she, wrote, she was a freelance writer for the Maine Times for years. When I was getting ready to retire a year or two before, she asked me if she could interview me, and she started interviewing. And she wrote this book on my wife and my years at the park. Have you seen it? I've, I've heard of the book. Yeah. She named it uh, Wilderness Partners, <laughs> and she got it from that letter that Governor oh Baxter sent to me. That's, That's so perfect. That's the title to it, yeah. Yeah. I can show you one of those where you go, one of those books. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the challenge? What was the were challenges? Well, as I say, the controversial issues are always uh, challenging. As far as managing the park and, and being totally committed to the deeds of trust, knowing them and trying to enforce them mm -hmm. and trying to explain to staff why you could do that and why you couldn't do this. I even went to an extreme, as some would consider. I didn't, obviously. But all time I maintained, I had a, I had a uniform policy. Uh, males will not grow sideburns any lower than the bottom of the eye to the center of the ear. That's as long as they could have them. Wow. No beards, no mustache, no, no, no facial hair. Mm -hmm. The women would have a standard as well as to how they should keep their hair when they're in uniform and on the job. We maintained that policy. It was grieved a couple of times. I won in each and every one of them because the, general, the attorney general would come back and say, the park has the right to develop working policies, and as long as people know those policies, understand those policies, they will comply with them. And if they don't comply, then they probably should look for other work. Mm -hmm. They supported me that. The day I left, beard started showing up, long <laughs> hair, long sideburns. And I, my theory was, being an admirer of the Maine State Police and how they've held a policy for all these years, yeah. the Maine Warden Service even, I don't know if they still do or not. They, but they do. They yeah. still do. Forestry was a little slack on it, but those two organizations I admired, and I admired Governor Baxter, which was such a groomed person, if you will, if that's yes. not a great, great word. I don't care when you saw him or wherever you saw him. I went to his office. That's another story I can tell you about, but I went to his office and uh, met with him. And he set the standard for how a public servant should appear. Yeah. And I believed in that. I enforced it. I protected it. I argued for it. And I exceeded at it, probably frustrating a lot of people. Mm. My chief ranger, for example, Chris. <laughs> he loved having a beard in the winter, kept his face warm. He yeah. said, well, I said, well, you got a helmet and a shield to do that. <laughs> we go back and forth <laughs> on that. And we finally did lessen up on that one thing in the wintertime on that argument that they could, during the months of January to whatever it was, uh, early spring, uh, they could wear a, a beard while they were patrolling and so forth. But, yeah. Uh, or during those months. Yeah. Um, 
How did you see the fisheries change over the years in the park? We had uh, surveys, obviously, done by, yeah. by the fish and wildlife biologists. And um, Russell Pond had, uh, they came back and said that the population of fish at Russell Pond was a natural hatch hatchery in a sense. Yeah. That they would never have to stock that because it just reproduced such good, good water. And they even talked about the um, centipede, Wasatacook Lake and South Branch Pond, mm. uh, a blueback, some people call them. Uh, they were doing good. And there was such a good report on that, uh, you know, the fisheries were, have been good and I expect still is. Yeah, they are. At this point in time. Yeah. Um, do you remember some interesting waters in the park? Like, um, can you tell me about South Branch, what happened there, or, um, you know, other cool what places? What I'd like to focus on. Have you been to Wasatacook Lake? I have not, but I have oh, heard... you got to go. Yeah. It is... In fact, if you've got time today, I'd like to take you on the full wheeler. I created a, a family campground. Oh, did That's you? That's another story. <laughs> I, when we get retired, I'd only been retired about uh, a couple of weeks, maybe three. And I said to my wife one day, Jan, I said, "Hun, we we've got to get up early Sunday morning. Uh, Monday morning, I've got to get back to the park. And she said, what are you going back to the park for? I said, well, I've got some things to do. She said, Buzz, firmly, <laughs> you are retired you're not going back to the park, and you'd better get a life or you're going to drive me crazy. <laughs> I went out of the woods. I had a 10-acre woodlot, mm -hmm. and I built me a campground. Nice one. Yeah. I got a ranger's camp. I got a workshop. I got a woodshed. I got a 10-by-20-foot covered table with a naughty pine ceiling and a cement slab, and I got the fanciest outhouse in the town of East Corinth. <laughs> <laughs> and if you'd like to see a tour there, We'll take two four-wheelers and go down there after, before you leave today, if you'd like to do that. I know whether you want or not. And relative to that, what I'm also going to show you is a uh, invitation I've sent out before I went. So I've been out in Maryland for two weeks, just get back down to her, her kids' family. Uh, but before I left, I sent this notice out to a lot of people. I think I sent out close to 40 invitations to a Baxter Park Ranger and Friends picnic. Mm -hmm. And I've sent those to friends of the park and rangers that I worked with as well as current rangers that may be available today that would like to come. I've done this four years now. Jan and I started it. We wanted to stay in touch with the park, and we wanted the park people to stay in touch with each other. Yeah. So we created this rangers picnic. We've had to, held it for uh, three years. The fourth year was last year. We couldn't because of the virus. But uh, I've got it scheduled for the 23rd of August. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be at the campground, as it's been in the past. And uh, you're invited. If you'd like to come, you'll see you'll see a lot of the old timers. One in particular I want you to uh, think about is Rodney Sargent. Rodney was a ranger that was in this drafted into service when I started in '60, and I covered his campground for the summer of '60 before I went to Russell in the fall. Rodney was there during the Ralph Heath. Um, in fact, he was the first person to on the trail to look for Ralph after he had climbed the mountain and, mm -hmm. and uh, was in trouble during that storm. And Rodney's kind of a laid-back, quiet-type guy. Whether he'll be comfortable talking about those days or not, I don't know. But he is a source of a lot of history. Yeah. He started quite a few years before I did. I think he started in 55 and I started in 60. And I think he and I are the only two living 
members of that original staff. Wow. Frank Dallin, Ralph Heath, Wilbur Smith, uh, Rodney, Owen Grant, Heland, and yours truly. Uh, that was the staff at the park. Wow. Yeah. But he'll be there. Uh, I talked to him on the time. He's, uh, I'm 82, and I think he's a year or two older than I am. But wow. uh, he's in good spirits. He lives down southern Maine somewhere. Yeah. He and his wife will be there. Um, so you never fully answered my question about... Which one? <laughs> <laughs> um, about what are some interesting waters in Baxter State Park? Okay, uh, Green Falls, definitely. Because uh, if you haven't been there, you really need to put that higher on your agenda. It's a mm -hmm. seven-mile walk from Roanbrook to Russell Pond, as you know. Mm -hmm. And it's 2.7 uh, miles from Russell Pond up to Wasada Cook Lake. Yep. You go up through the beautiful six-pond area, deep pond, six-pond. Yep. And you get to Wasada Cook, and there's a canoe there, and you can make arrangements to use that if you mm -hmm. want. I recommend to take somebody with you because the winds come up pretty high on Wasada Cook. Yeah. It's a half mile wide, it's about two miles long. It's of 90 some odd feet in depth in the middle. Wow. There's two mountains, Pogi Mountain on one side yep. and Wasakook Mountain on the other. And this, this lake is right down, down in the valley. Right down the valley. Yeah. And draining into that lake is Green Falls. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to take a canoe or you need to hike from the shore of the lake along the shoreline or canoe, you can paddle up. And you unload up there at the at the cove. It's it's distinguishable. You can see it, and you'll hear the roar of the falls. And you climb up, and it's probably as far as from here. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe it's a couple couple thousand feet. Yeah. In distance. Yeah. And you get up there, and the last of it, you're climbing right up rocks. But when you get there, there's that little pool. And that beautiful, beautiful water coming off that falls with a green moss background. Oh, beautiful, wow. beautiful sight. And uh, well worth seeing. It's worth making a trip in just for that as far as I'm concerned. But um, that's that was always my favorite waterway yeah. is, is the lake itself. I think Wasatacook Lake is probably the purest and most beautiful lake that exists in the state of Maine. Mm. And a lot of that's because it's right in the backcountry of Baxter State yeah. Park. And there's no intrusions on that lake. Yeah, very hard to get to. Yeah. 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 So that's that. I, I'd recommend you go to Russell, stay overnight, and then just make a day trip up there and back, and then maybe a, another night and then a hike out, uh, whatever you wanted to do. Yeah. yeah. But that that's there. And then I'll also, uh, uh, you don't tell here, fishing holes. <laughs> Ask me where I catch my fish. Where do you catch your fish? Well, you know, you look pretty honest, and the person generally don't reveal where they catch their fish, but you look like you wouldn't tell anybody if you promised me. So I'm going to take your word from that, and I'm going to tell you where I catch my fish, right through the upper lip. <laughs> <laughs> Little joke I pulled in the sports one. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, no, there are... Um, I like fishing deep pond. It was always fun. Yeah. I, I fish Russell, but that was so routine because I lived there. Gosh, I lived on uh, uh, white rice, corn muffins, and brook trout. Because <laughs> uh, you're in there for seven. You're in there for a month. Oh yeah. You got one trip a month. You can go out in those days. The rangers come out now with standard work weeks and all that. Yeah. But I when I went out 
when my pack basket it was to fill it up with groceries and pack it in. Mm. And every once in a while, the plane, they would send the Super Cub from Shin Pond. Uh, uh, Elmer Wilson was the first pilot, and then when he got done, Ray Porter yeah. uh, was the next pilot. And uh, they would come in and uh, bring in the propane tank of gas there. Mm-hmm. And also bring, if I had supplies, I'd call it out, they'd send I'd those in. Them, yeah. But otherwise, I was going out once a month and coming back in. So I lived there, so I obviously Russell's very, very positive. Deep Pond, uh, I enjoyed that. Wissetico Lake is, is a favorite. Uh, I enjoy very much Slaughter Pond, the hike in there. I like the small ponds along the perimeter road. Um, obviously, Round Pond and Rocky Pond and that hike from Toad Pond over the back way by Rocky and on over to Abel Pond. Yeah. Uh, South Hunk Stream, love South Hunk Stream. Uh, Katahdin Stream, who could not love that? Yeah. You know, it's a mile up there to that falls, and uh, I don't care so much for those monkey bars up higher up on the rocks, <laughs> but I had to carry stretches down over those, so those aren't real good, yeah. pleasant memories. Because in those days, we, we lugged everybody who got injured from the top of the mountain to the bottom. Oh uh, pretty much. All the water, South Hunk, if you like catching trout, that's a great place to go, too, yeah. if you know where to go. Yeah, yeah. Dean Lavasser said that that's oh, yeah. his favorite place to fish. Is, Dean knows, yep. yeah. 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 Um, so could you tell me a little bit about IF&W's involvement with the park? They're a, they're a key factor, obviously, because of the fish and wildlife resources and uh, the management of those resources. So I commuted. Actually, between them and forestry and even the AG's office, I... I communicated with those folks yeah real often yeah. yeah and they were in charge of all the surveys on the ponds and all that yes. so yeah. yeah yeah and the forest service of course is responsible for the fire prevention yeah activities as well as the issues when they arose and mm-hmm. we hit some big ones yeah i'm sure mm-hmm. so my final question to you is if you had advice to give to a student about working in the outdoors what advice would you give them I would advise them to go beyond what I did because of the times now. I think it's probably it was important in those days, but it wasn't in my mind. I, I want to get into woods, go to a classroom. Uh, they need to get their education, and they had, need to decide what they want, what they want in life for a career. The career that I I entered and lived. It was not a job, it was a lifestyle. Yeah. And if I had life to live over again, they've asked me, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to go. I, I'd like to avoid the mistakes I made, but mm-hmm. I'd like to go back to the same job. Yeah. It was, it was great. So I think get an education, uh, focus on what you want to do, put your mind to it, work hard, be good, be honest to people, and um, don't give up. First time they say no to you. You, you, I'm not very bright, but I thought out my positions and I tried to line my ducks up. Yeah. And uh, it worked well for me, obviously. (laughs) For this episode, I'd like to thank Friends of Baxter State Park, Millinocket Memorial Library, and Buzz Caverly for your time and patience. Thank you. 